Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Uh, so good morning, everybody. Today I'm here with my colleagues Christopher Mitchell, who directs our broadband program, Kennedy Smith, who's a senior researcher for our independent business program, and Katie Keenbaum, who is a senior researcher for our energy program. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Thank you. Um, so in our last episode, if you heard that one, we were still waiting for election results to be finalized. You know, we were kind of looking back at what's happened, but we're going to shift gears this time around now that we know a little bit more about what the future might hold uh, and talk about what we are working towards uh, in 2021 and beyond and what we might expect to happen. So let's start with Kennedy, if you're good with that. Um, you have had your eye on small businesses throughout the country, um, many of which, or perhaps all of which, are suffering uh, through the pandemic. Uh, can you talk about where they're at right now? I know in the Twin Cities, we're about to shut down again, I think, this evening and close a lot of retail businesses. So, um, yeah, I guess what's what's happening? Who's been hardest hit? Um, we'll start there. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's not good. It's not pretty out there. Um, as you as you know, as you're seeing on the ground, um, there are a lot of states that are now starting to shut down again. And so that means a lot of hardship. The The good news, I would say, is that this time around with this round of shutdowns, um, local and state governments know a little bit more than they did the first time around. And so uh, states are already doing things like clamping down on big box stores and saying that um, if they that 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 big box stores have to close off their non-essential departments so that they're not having a competitive edge over uh, independent businesses. So if you're if you have a you know a shoe store uh, in a downtown, you're independently owned, um, you're shut down. That's it. You have to do you know curbside pickup and delivery, and that's all. But somebody could go to a big box store and while they're buying their groceries, also buy shoes. So um, states are clamping down on that. Um, many more communities and states are enacting. Um, delivery fee caps so that um, the big uh, delivery companies, uh, Grubhub, Postmates, Uber Eats, uh, DoorDash, aren't um, hurting them, uh, hurting lo locally owned restaurants. So there's a little bit more savviness going into it. But we're also uh, about to fall off this cliff in that uh, businesses that were able to kind of scrape by with uh, Paycheck Protection Program loans and uh, economic injury disaster loans uh, are now out of money. And, and winter is coming and they can't do business like they could in the summer and, and spring. So uh, I think we're gonna see, we've already seen some businesses close permanently and those were the ones where, you know, uh, maybe they were kind of on the edge anyway, maybe their owners were getting ready to retire. They just made the decision to close. These have fought their way through the summer and fall and I think we're gonna now lose a big chunk of businesses. Um, and for really silly reasons, like, you know, if Congress would just get its act together and pass a new uh, relief package, we could get these businesses, especially restaurants, which are really struggling, we could get them through the next couple of months. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. And I just I just wanted to clarify that, you know, I, I made it sound like they're only suffering because they're shutting down again. But I know that, you know, like my favorite place, like I love movie theaters, I love restaurants. And even when they've been open, you know, I'm not going to hang out in a restaurant for a couple hours. That's just not, most people aren't doing that. Um, so they've been limited. And even as they're trying to be flexible and continue throughout the summer, 
one of the things I think it's worth reminding people is some states never shut down and it's not like their local businesses um, are doing well in that situation. But Kennedy, I'm actually curious, based on what you were saying about how states are adjusting, have you seen any examples of states that are using more like a scalpel approach? And and I'll just say I got a, an email recently from a rock climbing gym that I have been a member of, and they're furious because they're part of the gyms that have been closed down and they included numbers and some all caps sentences um, showing a lot of emotion, suggesting that um, through the precautions that they have taken, they have been responsible for zero cases and they're really frustrated that they're not able to remain open um, despite being very successful. I assume states just don't have the capacity to be able to w- go through those sorts of numbers to to make those kinds of distinctions. But I'm just curious if, if you've seen anything that's interesting along those lines. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, states really don't have the capacity or, or communities. They're just completely overwhelmed and administering, you know, all these sort of relief um, programs uh, too over the, the spring and summer has completely overwhelmed them and they just don't have the capacity to do anything. So I think that they're they're having to take these sort of draconian, you know, one size fits all measures in some cases. The only scalpel like thing I've seen are things like the communities that are uh, imposing restrictions on big box stores. Um, that I think is a very wise thing. And I wish that more more places would uh, would do that. But I'm, I'm beginning to see them pop up every day. Um, something else that is sort of looming is that the deadline for uh, communities that have gotten allocations from the CARES Act, from the Coronavirus Relief Fund, have to use that money by December 30th. And so all of a sudden, you know, places are scrambling because if they don't use it, it reverts back to the federal government. And most states and places that got direct allocations, places that are over 500,000 in population, so large counties and cities got their own allocations. They had all put a, put aside a chunk of money sort of in reserve to see where the greatest need might be towards the end of the calendar year whether it was in you know, health or first responders or whatever it might be, now they're saying they need it in uh, small business relief. So states like Maryland, um, Ohio, Oregon, South Dakota have just in the past week uh, suddenly allocated you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars towards a new wave of uh, relief here at the end of the year, which is really, really needed. Washington, D.C. just um, two days ago announced another $100 million they're putting into uh, mostly restaurants and hotels to help get them through. So that's a that's a good sign. Um, I'm also seeing some places that have kind of uh, inadvertently shot themselves in the foot with the programs that they've created, which I think is, again, another sign of, uh, you know, communities not having the, the capacity to do this. Um, I came across a woman who has a uh, an interior design shop and uh, studio uh, in Honolulu the other day. Not literally came across her, of course. I'm not going anywhere, but um, read an article. Explain about, that, Tan. Uh, yeah. So she, uh, you know, she was thinking, you know, her business has dropped off a cliff. And what she really, uh, customers have been asking her for is uh, if she has a kiln because they're doing, they're at home doing pottery and they need a place to fire it. So Hawaii has this cool business pivot grant program where businesses can get a grant of 10,000 bucks to pivot in some ways to add a new product line or something like that. The catch is it's a reimbursable grant. So she has to spend the money up front and then apply to be reimbursed for it. And she doesn't have the money to buy it up front. So she's SOL. And uh, I'm seeing places like that where some states have large amounts of money that are going to go back to the Department of Treasury because they can't get it out the door because they've created their own little regulatory uh, nest. And I would just quickly jump on that to say that um, we've seen townships in Minnesota, I know this is true, in many places that are giving money back to the state because they were not able to spend it on broadband like they'd like to because of the strict requirements around the CARES Act that are not really 
in line with what it takes to build a broadband network. It is very hard to do it in a few months. And so money that had been allocated in that way will be going back to the federal treasury likely. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's still some questions out there too on what uh, CARES Act money can and cannot be used for. I've uh, come across two communities here in Virginia where where I live, um, one of whom used uh, a lot of its CARES Act money to buy uh, gift cards in local restaurants and then just mailed them literally to everybody in town. So it helped the restaurants and it also helped the people who maybe were laid off or furloughed or something and um, could get get meals that way. The town literally next door, their city attorney decided that that was not a legitimate use of CARES Act money. So one's doing it, one's not. Uh, there are lots of things nobody nobody knows. So, so I know you. It sounds like um, it's not likely we're going to see uh, real relief coming from the federal government in the immediate future. But is there anything that they could, you know, what needs to happen there in order for us to avoid just complete disaster for small businesses? And is there anything that they could like mimic or take from these local programs that would help? Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a really an actually easy thing that they could do if they chose to do so would be simply to extend the deadline for places to use their CARES Act money. Um, because then communities could kind of, you know, stretch it through uh, over the next few months instead of having this hard, hard close on uh, on December 30th. Um, they could also take some of the money that is not being used in the um, uh, Main Street Lending Program. It was a $650 billion program of which only about $7 billion has been uh, spent so far. They could take $600 billion of that and make that available. That would be a, re- a really nice thing to do. Um, it's really important that the federal government take action, too, because states and local governments at this point, their their budgets are just completely wiped out. They have had to spend so much money on so many unexpected things uh, throughout the pandemic that they're going to be in deficit for years. Um, it really has to come from the feds. Yeah, I think just to quickly illustrate that, there was this discussion at the beginning of the pandemic that I saw on one of our um, listservs of dealing with politics and um and there was this question of why doesn't the state do more? And a quick back of the envelope calculation showed that if the state tried to give out money, even just $200 per person, it would blow through the entire rainy day fund uh, immediately uh, because states just don't have the capacity. Even a state that is in a very good financial position like Minnesota was coming into this situation. And so, you know, when you say only the federal government can do it, it's literally the case that, um, that it's not just a matter of being like, oh, well, they have more resources. Like they literally are the only entity that has the capacity to be able to do, uh, to move the needle in any way. Right. That's very true. Uh, I think it's also important that if the feds do get their acts together and issue another relief package of some kind. Um, I think the one thing that has worked well is getting that money into the hands of local leaders pretty quickly because they're the ones who really can figure out what the greatest needs are locally. Is it restaurants? Is it retail businesses? Is it hotels? Is it um, businesses owned by women and minorities and veterans? Is it, you know, who is it? Um, who needs it? Is it is it landlords? Um, and community leaders are learning a lot about how businesses operate in their community throughout this pandemic. I've spoken to a number of people who were administering and uh, managing these uh, local relief programs, and they've learned things they never would have known before um, about the level of sophistication or lack thereof of some other business sectors, um, of the strength of business sectors that they hadn't really appreciated. Um, So I think we're taking a lot of important lessons out of this into the future. Um, We're just going to need to spend some time kind of sifting through them all and Uh, making sense of it and documenting it and turning it into shoe leather, as they say. (laughs) Um, Is there anything else you want to say, Kennedy, or any questions for Kennedy before we move on? I'm pretty excited about 
um, some of the things that are happening at the local level with uh, with restaurant meal deliveries, um, I am seeing all of a sudden a huge number of local delivery services pop up. Um, they're locally owned. They're completely committed to supporting locally owned restaurants. Um, they're charging a fraction of the fees um, that the big delivery services are. Um, they're coming up with these sort of amazingly creative business models um, that work in all kinds of different ways. Um, and they're really, really succeeding very quickly. They're like ramping up and hiring 50, 60, 70 people in little tiny towns. Um, I've seen two or three that are basically co-ops that are owned by uh, restaurants themselves who, who banded together and um, collectively hired a few delivery staff. Um, so lots of, lots of innovation and lots of, uh, you know, creative thinking uh, coming out of this too. Uh, and that's kind of cool to watch. Kennedy, I'm, I'm curious if we can, it, it seems distasteful to do this, but I'm quite curious, you know, it, let's just say, for instance, a lot of salons are about to go bankrupt. And, and I certainly think that's unfair. Uh, I think we should have done more to help them. Um, and frankly, the numbers in Minnesota suggest the salon owners have been very responsible in the the guidelines provided by government have really prevented uh, the the pandemic from uh, exploding in salons. Is this just going to be a dig at my homemade bangs here, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I actually think they look great. Um, it's more that I can't get out from my normal monthly, you know, cut, and uh, that I, obviously you can tell from looking at me that I take a great pride in my hair. Um, <laughs> the, the question is: is you have a bunch bunch of salons that go bankrupt. Now, those salon owners, presumably it'll be harder for them to go into new lines of business because banks will worry about them with the, the, the background that they have. Um, but would new entrepreneurs then be able to buy this stuff on the cheap and, and reestablish kind of like mammals were having this niche that then after the extinction of the dinosaurs, <laughs> they were able to come out? I mean, what... <laughs> What is the situation? I, and I say that, like I said, it's distasteful because we would like to preserve those businesses. But is it possible that parts of this will lead to a resurgence because of the lower cost to buy durable you know, equipment and things like that? Okay, so there's a couple of different things embedded in your question there. One is that we're seeing in, in the, well, it's just the reality. We're seeing this happen to an extent with commercial real estate um, where, you know, businesses are, are are going belly up, the spaces are vacant, uh, their value therefore is plummeting because there's you know a supply and oversupply of commercial space. Um, and there are some real estate investment trusts, even some opportunity funds, some venture capitalists who are coming along and snapping up that property because they can get it on the cheap. Um, on the other side, on kind of the good side of the, the dark force, um, there are some uh, communities that are sort of using a um, uh, uh, a community land trust model to buy the land themselves, the, the commercial space, um, and be able to then hold it and lease it at a more affordable rate to independent businesses uh, in the future. So that's, you know, it's kind of a, a, a bad and a good thing uh, happening there at the same time. Um, in terms of the businesses, uh, one of the things I'm beginning to hear a lot of buzz about is the need over the next six months uh, to have some pro bono bankruptcy assistance for small businesses to help them kind of work out uh, the disposition of their existing business, but then to help them get back on their feet and reopen a business, whether it's the same one that, that they just reorganized um, or a new business that uh, they can bring things they've learned from this experience into um, and launch it again. And I'm already beginning to see some financial assistance programs. There's one in Florida that I saw the other day uh, pop up to uh, help exactly with that. So yeah, there's some opportunism uh, happening out there uh, but also, I think a lot of goodwill for helping business owners uh, get back on their feet and back in business if their business is full. Good. 
See, it was a brilliant question, despite being distasteful. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's what's uh, going on with small businesses. Um, you know, lots of uh, uh, speculation going on out there about what um, uh, product lines are going to survive, what kind of service lines are going to survive. Uh, we were talking a little while ago about uh, casual clothing, and um, I do think that that's a trend that is going to stay for good. And in fact, some of the uh, chain retailers that we've seen folding over the past m- um, a month or two tend to be ones that sell higher end dressier clothing, um, men's warehouse, things like that, gone. So are you telling us to uh, start investing in sweatpants startups, Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> sweatpants are soaring, let me tell you. Yeah. So, you know, there's some interesting business pivots and twists. The whole ghost kitchen thing is uh, transforming the restaurant industry. And I think that's going to stay I think it's not really a good good change necessarily, but I think it's going to stick around. Um, lots more sort of fluidity in business models, uh, businesses learning to sell things and meet customers' needs in many, many different ways as a result of this. So we've had this sort of big uh, jolt of creativity, I think, that you know has been born, uh, born by necessity uh, that is really rattling uh, small businesses across the country right now, shaking things up. It's going to be a long and strange and busy winter for you, I'm sure, as you try to keep track of all those things. (laughs) It it will indeed. Next, we're going to hear about our proposal for 30 million solar homes across the U.S. But first, let's take a short break. This Thanksgiving week, we're thankful for your support of this show and your interest in ILSR's work. We rely on your help to produce the resources necessary to push back against concentrated corporate power and build strong local communities. If you're able, we hope you'll consider heading over to ILSR.org donate to contribute today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And hey, even if you can't do so right now, we're happy you're here, and we hope you have a fun and safe holiday this week. Now let's go back to my conversation with my colleagues Christopher Mitchell, Kennedy Smith, and Katie Keebaum. Uh, so let's switch over to Katie. Um, so our energy program has this interesting policy concept that you're working on, I know, and it would be wrapped into some kind of COVID recovery efforts at the federal level. So can you talk about the this idea to create 30 million solar homes across the country? Of course. Uh, so as you said, uh, the idea of the proposal is to bring solar to the equivalent of 30 million homes across the country. That's about one in four American households, and that would be in the form of rooftop solar and locally owned community solar, and perhaps some solar on uh, small businesses, um, local community centers, that kind of thing. We originally envisioned this proposal as a way to take a really um, strong stab at a economic recovery effort and to um, do it in a way that also reinforces the urgency of uh, attacking the climate crisis, of also trying to ensure that um, folks who have traditionally um, been the most impacted by uh, dirty energy are the ones that are gonna benefit from this. So uh, low-income folks, communities of color, uh, and environmental justice communities, uh, that kind of thing. So we've been working with partners to develop a um, to work on um, a series of policy proposals and recommendations uh, that would leverage existing federal programs and um, efforts to get us to this point of rapidly um, ramping up uh, our solar capacity across the country. 
Could you um, break down those benefits a little bit more? Um, so just, I mean, the difference between having, I don't know, giant solar farms versus having these at the community level, um, what kind of benefits does that bring to like a particular family? So as opposed to utility scale solar, so, you know, what you might think of when you think of a giant rows and rows of solar panels in the field in a desert somewhere, uh, having locally sited um, solar, so, you know, maybe solar on your family's home or uh, solar on your uh, favorite rec center or uh, a smaller solar array um, that's uh, somewhere in the community. Uh, it means that a lot of those, um, you know, benefits accrue locally. So you are, folks have to install that solar. Um, that means the jobs stay local. Uh, if it's you know, something that you have ownership over, you're you're taking more of the, that economic benefit from uh, the solar energy that is produced in the form of, um, for example, bill credits. Uh, it's also very important to uh, shift some of the control over our energy system from uh, these large utilities to um, the folks that, like you, me, all of us folks listening to this podcast, fully see in our communities. Um, so we have more decisions over our energy future and we're able to be the ones who benefit, not shareholders for an investor-owned utility. Kitty, you might remember from your ancient history working on broadband that reliability was a big issue. And I'm I'm curious, is there is there any sort of impact in um, terms of microgrids for reliability and and those sorts of benefits for folks? Yeah, it can be. It depends on how you you um, structure it. Uh, so we've seen a lot with many recent disasters, you know, hurricanes, uh, forest fires, uh, that sometimes those can impact the electric grid and uh, take out energy in folks' homes and businesses and, you know, hospitals, (laughs) urgent places for weeks, months uh, at a time. So if you, um, you can develop it. So um, if you have like locally sited solar, you can um, pair that with energy storage or um, like Chris said, microgrids to maintain some of that resiliency. Um, so you aren't, you know, fully at um, risk of losing all sources of power if the local electric grid is impacted by a natural disaster of that sort. So, I mean, it sounds to me like this is a good idea all around, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, we have a president-elect who has promised, you know, stronger action around climate change slash any action around climate change. (laughs) And, you know, we have this national crisis and the pandemic that we need to recover from. Do you think that this, you know, is, is, are there any political barriers to this? Or do you feel like it's something that could be received well um, and have you know, a good potential to be enacted? Like you said, uh, Biden has proposed spending, I think it's $2 trillion on uh, climate change mitigation efforts. So things like solar, uh, which is massive. And I, we are definitely much more optimistic about the future of this proposal with a Biden presidency compared to a, um, you know, continuation of the Trump administration. Um, However, it does depend on what can happen in Congress um, for a lot of these actions. We're we're looking into um, we haven't solidified our um, policy approach, but we're we're looking at a lot of different programs and approaches. And 
for example, anything that requires, you know, new funding, new laws, that'll have to go through Congress, which at this point is undecided. But if it, we do end up with a um, Democratic-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate, it may be a little bit more difficult to pass some of this bold legislation um, that we really believe the country needs in this time, both with the, um, the economic crisis, the climate crisis, you know, the continued national conversation around racism. So there is an avenue, but there there will be some challenges, especially since there are so many competing priorities right now. Um, obviously, we need you know funding for small businesses. We need all these other things. But generally, um, a lot of the things we're looking at have um, even some bipartisan support. Conservatives do in, often enjoy clean energy as well. Um, so there's some hope, and we are looking at potentially uh, regulatory changes or changes in agency policy that would, you know, only require the executive branch, um, which will be controlled by Biden. Uh, So there are some challenges. And of course, um, we anticipate that investor-owned utilities will not agree with a lot of our proposals because it would uh, not give them control over the... uh, the new solar energy, um, but it would keep the control in the hands of their customers, which is not always um, what utilities want um, because they don't, uh, it one, again, just um, takes the control out of their hands and they don't get to, um, you know, wring as much economic proceeds from that as possible. Katie, to what extent can some of this be funded by the private sector too, by um, you know, ESG investment funds and things like that. Is there are there opportunities there? Can we just bypass Congress? Yeah, definitely, possibly. Um, we have been focusing most of our um, thinking around this around federal actions that uh, the government can take, um, just because the scale of what we're proposing is just honestly massive, um, and it's hard to coordinate <laughs> enough forces without you know some type of um, federal action. But uh, I, there's definitely opportunities, and we are looking into some some options for uh, ways we can leverage private funding to uh, to fund some of these types of projects. Jeff Bezos is handing out lots of money to environmental groups this this uh, this week. Maybe he can invest in uh, putting solar roofs on 30 million homes. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love to hear from us. We could just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would. Let's have Stacey. Call. I, I I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't turn him away, but uh, I think it'd be difficult since Stacy is frequently referred to as a noted critic of Amazon when she is interviewed or mentioned in the press. Much like doctors are noted critics of COVID-19. It sounds to me, at least, that there is potential for like a lot of avenues to make this happen just because it has such wide ranging benefits, um, you know, from the economic to environmental justice uh, veins. So... Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely trying to approach it from, you know, uh, yes, and all of the above, every every avenue we can use to try and push this, because like I said, it would be a massive undertaking, um, a massive achievement, and um, we really need to, to think creatively in each and every way we can push forward this this kind of future that we're looking for. This might be a too far down the road question, but do you have any sense of um, like the logistics of this? Like, is this a project that would happen over 
five years or, you know, like all of this, all of this building. Do you have any sense of that at all right now? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say exactly um, because everything uh, builds on itself. But like yeah. how quickly can you ramp up a solar workforce? How mm-hmm. quickly, you know, can we increase production and manufacturing? Um, I think we'd, we'd hope to see a really strong showing in the next five years. I, you know, I'm not sure that's, that's really our timeline for the full you know, 30 million solar homes equivalent, but I'd hope, I'd hope to see something significant in the next five years. And why not? I mean, we put somebody on the moon, so why can't we put 30 million solar panels on, on, on 30 million houses? Yeah, you don't have to it even take convenient. them to the moon. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a shorter trip. And it's something we already know how to do. We do know how to put panels on houses, as far as I know. <laughs> And I hear there are a lot of Americans who are going to be looking for jobs. So you can have an army of installers. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's uh, the, you know, the, the economic impact is a really, a really strong component of this, this idea, this concept. Yeah. When you think about how much money communities spend on, you know, economic incentives to lure big box stores and ridiculous kinds of, uh, you know, projects that ultimately don't really help the community at all. Think if that money were routed instead into something really productive like this. Hmm. Speaking of <laughs> wasting money on <laughs> programs that don't actually solve the problem that we're talking about. I don't know anything about a quarter of a billion dollars given to AT&T in Mississippi for better broadband that not a single person experienced. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, what could you do with $250 million? <laughs> Oh, let me pull up my policy proposals. So a lot of solar. Yeah. Um, so uh, moving on to you, Chris, then, um, do you want to talk about some of the approaches that could work in solving our nation's broadband problems? Yes, but I would like to, I think, preface it with one solution that I'm a little bit worried about. And that is one that relies on the existing uh, big cable and telephone monopolies. Um, you know, if, if your goal is just to get as many people online as fast as possible and ignore all the other benefits, the long-term costs of, of such a thing, then it, it can certainly make sense to just ask, you know, Comcast, Charter Spectrum, AT&T to do more. Um, but I think the long-term impacts of that are really bad. And in part, because these companies just don't want to do that. Um, so so I, we, uh, I wrote an article in Nonprofit Quarterly that um, I'm guessing will show up in a link on the page here. And, and so I just want to, I want to talk about that a little bit. And, um, and the, the analogy that I use is I feel like people look at this issue of, of tens of millions of Americans who are not connected, either because of a lack of infrastructure, mostly in rural areas, or a lack of ability to pay high prices in urban areas. And they say, well, AT&T and Comcast, Charter Spectrum, they, they do a lot of internet. Probably they can solve it. And when we look at, um, you know, whether it's the school lunch program or whether it's international efforts to fight hunger, not very many people say, you know who should solve this? Archer Daniels Midland or, um, you know, Lando Lakes. Um, you know, those companies are assumed to be very good at supply chains. They're assumed to know what's going on with with the cereals and things like that. You know, the 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 things that go into the processed foods that we eat. <laughs> um, but we rationally do not expect them to solve the problem, and yet we somehow think that Comcast or AT and T are the natural ones to solve these challenges of connecting people that have been left behind by the existing markets. 
Right. And so your article focuses on not just one model. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, electric co-ops getting into broadband, but there's a lot of different models, um, all of which are nonprofit or nonprofit adjacent uh, that could be used to solve this, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the goals is that is that the entities that we want to solve this problem are are probably often nonprofit motivated. And the key thing is that at the end of the year, they evaluate themselves based on how many people have they connected and not just connected, but have actually driven value from the connections. How many people have a higher quality of life because of an intervention from that organization that not only brought them internet access, but also made sure they were able to use it, made sure that they had telehealth opportunities on it, made sure that their kids were able to use it during the school day if they're schooling remotely or in the evening when they're maybe doing their homework. Um, and, and, you know, AT&T, Comcast, even local private companies, which have much better business models that, that are in line with local community values, um, they just, that's not their goal at the end of the year. And as we talk about connecting more and more people that have been historically disadvantaged, historically marginalized, uh, they often have greater needs. And so it's not even enough just to make sure they may have a $10 a month connection. They need some kind of training uh, to make sure they're able to use it safely. You know, our, co- our colleague Michelle was just telling me today about uh, an instance when she was working on this and um, a person she was working with was applying for jobs online. And I think Michelle was there helping to, to do this. And the person had a pop-up that was asking for information, including social security number. This person's not very sophisticated and in and, and the internet may have been a recent immigrant who doesn't speak English as well. Um, and so they're naturally, they're sitting there filling out forms. They see another form pop up, boom, they're going to fill it out. <laughs> you know, like you or I don't even see that. We, we, we destroy, you know, we, we, we erase that box so quickly. Um, and so, you know, these are people that, that need training and they need some kind of ongoing help and nonprofit business models are the ones I think to do it. Um, we need again, federal support. We need state support. We need local support. Chicago is actually a a good model of this, um, for digital literacy training. Um, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, it's making sure that we have business models, uh, nonprofit business models, most likely that are aligned with driving value, not just trying to figure out, okay, maybe I'll make a smaller margin, but my focus is still on that margin per customer. Um, you know, we just, we, we can do this with better business models. And my argument is that, um, that will lead to more productivity, higher quality of life in ways that will ultimately lead to much more value, even if over the next several years, it costs a little bit more upfront. Right. And I'm I'm just thinking, you know, a lot of those people who might need that extra help are also the people who, you know, need to unlock the door or, you know, could benefit most from unlocking that door to what that offers, you know, even if it's being able to take a class online at home in the evenings and then, you know, move into a higher paying job, that kind of thing. Similar to yes. to, to Katie's program, it's like the benefits are are many when you have that. They are. And actually, let me take an example. You know, here we are close to Thanksgiving. And unfortunately, many of us won't be seeing our our uncles, the mythical uncle who's the angry, you know, sort of knee jerk reactionary type who says, why should I care if anyone else has Internet access? Why? Why is a dollar of my taxpayer money going to help them out? And one of the answers is, is that by making sure people 
can have adequate telehealth will have lower rates of emergency room visits that have to be covered by the public. Uh, I think we'll see much lower, um, much slower rates of expansion or perhaps in a, in a world in which we rapidly get everyone using telehealth, perhaps even a decline in the amount of Medicaid, Medicare, and Department of Veteran Affairs spending on, on health. There's so much waste in health. <laughs> Getting people online and providing access for them on an ongoing basis is practically nothing compared to the money that can be saved by just delivering healthcare more efficiently. Maybe this is this is getting into the weeds, but I mean, are, are healthcare institutions aware of that? And like the switch just hasn't happened yet? Or have are they like yet? I don't know, I'm thinking like insurance companies. Are, do they like still need to be convinced um, of, of that potential in order to like put some funding behind these efforts? I think this is sort of like a classic sort of market failure in that I think the health insurance folks, they don't have the capacity to figure out how people are connected at home. You know, they don't have a uh, background in that. Um, they can't even assume in their business model that most people are connected. And so I think if we have effective uh, government intervention to make sure people are connected, the healthcare system would then change their business models to build on that assumption. If it could assume that everyone was connected. Similarly, if schools could assume that everyone was connected, then they have incentives to start changing their processes to take advantage of that. And I mean, to some extent, this is just, it's one of those issues in which the direct benefits to healthcare are probably tenuous enough that they don't want to get involved in something they're not historically involved in even if we could show in a mathematical model that they would benefit directly from it. And that's why I, this is literally a problem for why we have government, right? Like there's all these benefits that are like really diffuse and don't immediately result in money. And so a private market will naturally underinvest in it because nobody can capture those gains. Uh, but there's enough gains that if government were to do it, we would expect the economy to grow faster and people to just lead healthier lives in ways that would really uh, benefit everyone more than the cost of making sure everyone had that internet access. Chris, do you uh, would you say that the pandemic that we're currently in has really emphasized the importance of these kinds of um, technologies to healthcare providers and others? Yes. Um, six months of the pandemic has resulted in you know, maybe even three months of the pandemic resulted in many more telehealth um, you know, innovations uh, from healthcare providers and insurance companies to deal with facilitating healthcare delivery and, and checkups and that sort of thing remotely. Um, you know, I, we may see healthcare facilities that have closed locations never go back to as big of a footprint, even if they are delivering more care. Um, but I think the most important thing is that I do not think it is a serious argument anymore for anyone to say the library or the McDonald's is good enough. We very clearly need high quality internet access inside everyone's living quarters. Yeah, and I think that... Um... I mean, we've seen that that argument is just more obvious and I think more, I don't know, acceptable in rural areas where you might have areas where there's literally no internet access. Could you talk about, um, you know, how the strategy differs, you know, the like what we need to do for broadband access in urban areas instead of rural areas, which certainly do need the help. You know, we kind of, we know that that's very obvious, but as you said, like digital literacy and other you know, affordability, everything um, in urban areas is a whole different set of problems. Yes, I would say that that 
we often talk about this as sort of urban and rural as being different, but it's really a, a continuum um, between the two. And there's kind of a, there are different places on the continuum because there are many people in rural areas for whom a $50 a month great service is not going to solve their problem because they cannot afford that. Um, and so there's an affordability issue in rural America and in um, in urban America, there's people who, who just cannot have high quality networks because they live on a block that for whatever reason has been not served by the cable company and, and the telephone company hasn't invested. So, um, um, but you know, the, the situation is basically one in which the federal government making one-time investments can uh, solve both of these. And it's in slightly different ways, but um, by having networks that are run appropriately for the environment that have the right incentives, um, you know, in, in rural areas, it's probably more like cooperatives and in urban areas, it's probably more like a nonprofit. Um, but most often I would say a municipality would probably be best that operates the network on an open access basis, which means it doesn't directly provide services. It's more like a road that companies can use to connect their, um, their customers. And so for old people like me that were on the internet in the nineties, we were used to this because you had a dial up modem and you could call one of multiple numbers in a metro area. You could pick your service provider. And we had like 7,500 of them in a period, a few short years. Um, it was a business model that exploded and provided all kinds of opportunities. And by building these kinds of networks again and making it so that companies can create local business models without having to spend a thousand dollars per customer connected. Um, you know, if they only have to spend a few um, tens of dollars to get new customers on, like back in the old days with the modems, we'll create lots of new business opportunities and the innovation I think will be remarkable. I don't think this is something where we'll suddenly see a major wave of it. What we'd like to see is a few test areas to prove this out in a few areas and then build on it from there. So it's it's something that's pretty exciting. And I think in the next few years, we'll see it start to happen a little bit at a time. Um, so fingers crossed. So in five years, I expect to have solar on the rooftop of my house and an excellent community uh, broadband uh, option for me to take in my home. So looking forward to that where you can uh, order from a locally owned delivery service to get your favorite local restaurant's meal. That's right. And don't forget that those small businesses need really great broadband too. That's absolutely true. And, you know, small businesses often have more options, but it's they're also often it's sort of a, a market in which everyone's offering a, a higher price than might be appropriate, um, than might be the minimum possible. So we see a tremendous range of what local businesses are paying across different cities and even within different cities. And with smart public investments, we would bring those costs down probably for almost everyone and result in a lot of pressure taken off of um, those business owners, make them more competitive too. just want to say, I do hope that I'm able to go in person to a, <laughs> local local restaurant um, instead of staying in my home to get it delivered five years from now. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Another pandemic. Sounds like it's about time for a second one right after that. Uh, ending on a hopeful note here. No, uh, but we are kind of running out of time. Uh, my final question was about how is everyone's local holiday shopping plans going? Um, I've been super excited, and so I've already started shopping, but maybe others are not uh, quite there yet. But if you have a favorite you know, local business that you want to shout out, I thought we could end on that. I can't believe it's almost Thanksgiving. I just am in denial. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's just a cold August right now. <laughs> Is it not still March? <laughs> yeah, this year has been five years long. It's kind of amazing. 
But um, yeah, no, there's some great uh, locally owned businesses around me. And I'm really kind of enjoying some things about this new way of shopping. Like there's a, a kid's toy and game store not far from me called One Two Kangaroo. And uh, you can just call them and say, I have a five-year-old niece. What do five-year-old kids want right now? What's the hot thing? And they and they tell you these five things are the, are the hot things. And you can choose one and you drive by and they put it in your trunk. I like it. I like it. It's nice. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I enjoy doing is for my young son, I like to go to the um, local uh, bookstore on Grand Avenue. Um, and um, and there's actually two close adjacent and, and just try to get a sense from them of what are what are some of the books I may not have heard of because it's been a while since I was, you know, looking for kindergartner books. Um, I don't track that market as much as the, as much as the, you know, the historical biography <laughs> market. <laughs> um, I know I am, I am uh, ordering a lot of stuff from Moon Palace Books, not in St. Paul, but in Minneapolis. Still pretty close because um, I love their pickup window. It's so cute. It's so great. I don't know. It's like, just walk up, get my stack of books. I'm not familiar with it. No? No, I Chris, haven't heard the that. store? You're a failure. At all? Yes. Well, we know this. <laughs> right down the street it, from our it's office. Like a, it's like a drive-through window? Uh, no, you have to walk up to it. Not if you're on a scooter. You can okay. bike up to it, yeah. but you can just knock or they're already there and then they open it and they give you your stack of books and then you go. Cool. All right. Is there a secret password when you knock? I'm sure you could put that in the notes for your order and they would, <laughs> <laughs> they would take that. But yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I miss the bookstore days. I've so much of my reading now comes from um, eBooks from the library, which is possibly my favorite thing in the world, but, um, but it does lead to spending less time in the bookstores. Yeah, yeah, that's a downside. There's some there's some fun things happening though. There's a there's a, a a cheese restaurant and retail store not far from me called Cheese Teak. Uh, if you are a cheese head, it is the place you want to be. And uh, they have like a little grocery and then a great restaurant. And they have uh, taken over a driveway adjacent to them and put down green astroturf and put a big uh, uh, fiberglass cow in it. And they call it their pasture. And so they have outdoor seating in the pasture, which is a uh, delightful and they're Hold doing in, inside of the cow <laughs> How is no the no cow no the, the cow's just standing there sort of for atmosphere so that okay. you feel like you're really out in the pasture and um you know where where freshly made cheese is is right there and uh and then they have friday night cheese classes where you can pick up your your cheese class package during the week um again curbside pickup and then uh, on friday night the owner of the store jill erber does this class where she teaches you all about stinky cheese or blue cheese or uh, cheese made by by women owned uh, dairies and all these different variations, and she teaches you how to pair it with wine and salami, and it's just delightful. Well, I never thought I'd say this, but I am considering moving back to Northern Virginia now. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so you are all used to my my brain hiccups, probably from staff meetings, but one that I will never forget was um, when I was I spent four months in the Middle East in college and. I was uh, on a kibbutz at the time, I traveled all around um, Israel, Palestine, and, and then uh, Lebanon and Jordan. And, um, and there, I was, I've never been as cultured as, as the rest of you. And someone was talking about goat cheese. And I, and I gave him this look and I said, what part of the goat does it come from? And it was just silence. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I think everyone heard me talk about my cheese CSA, which I had throughout the summer, um, that was basically every conversation I had with another human being for like 
five, six months was about my cheese CSA. <laughs> so big fan, goat cheese and, and otherwise. <laughs> um, and on that note, I think uh, we are at time and I'd love to continue talking about cheese varieties with you guys, <laughs> but we might want to wrap up. So any final comments or thoughts? American cheese is clearly the best. For cheeseburgers, I'll give you that. I won't even give him that. It's really great to see you all. Yeah, thanks all. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Alpiaco, and our theme music is Funky Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Alfiaco, and I hope to join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.